Hello and welcome. It's Graham Norton here. Thank you for listening to my Virgin Radio podcast with Waitrose. On the way, crime-writing royalty Denise Minor chats to us about her brand new novel, The Less Dead. Russell Tovey joins us live in the studio to celebrate his new release of his book, Talk Art, everything you wanted to know about contemporary art but were afraid to ask. And Anthony Boyle talks to us about his appearance in the brand new BBC2 drama, Danny Boy. But first... Here's Maria. How are you, my dear? Do you know, I'm all right, Graham Norton. Um, you know, like everybody, it's like you look out the window and think, oh, it's the 8th of May, someone tell the weather. But I have decided today, Graham, that I'm going to do some deforestation of the body. Oh, wow. Apply, fake, apply some fake tan because, you know, we, it'll be at a moment's notice. We'll wake up one morning and it'll be 75 degrees and, you know, beach body ready. Yes, that. I, that reminds me. I saw uh, King Kong versus Godzilla the other night. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well done to your little brain for plucking that out of the atmosphere. <laughs> I, I did watch it. And I stayed awake. Isn't it weird? I stay awake for those films, but then when it's a really good film, <laughs> oh, snooze. I stayed awake the other day to a Hoppers one watching Up in the Air, which is a film with... Oh, that's um, good, though. George Clooney, yeah, but then it got to the last bit and I thought, oh, yeah, I have seen this. <laughs> <laughs> this is how it's going to be, isn't it? This is the future. But isn't that Just... fun? We need far fewer books, far fewer films, because we get to enjoy them over and over again. Without realising that we only watched them last week. Yeah, there's a film called Palm Springs about people being trapped in a time loop. And, and that's how we are at the moment. No, but also I fell asleep during it, so now I've got to watch it again. <laughs> it's literally the plot of the film. Oh, the irony, Graham. Do you uh, know what I've been doing this week? I'm going to tell you, because I, I, I think you probably suffer from this. I'm going to be doing, well, I have been, one day a week, you know, clearing a cupboard. OK, that's right. We're doing that to make ourselves busy. And um, I have, I could do an entire feast, an entire mezze, mezze feast, Graham. Oh, indeed. yes, yes. An entire waitress mezze feast I could do with the amount of bowls and, you know, things that you put stuff in. Well, that is bowls, isn't it? Bowls yeah. and pots. Yeah. Um, I, I have so many. I, I think I have a, a bowl addiction. Um, and I just keep buying them because, you know, pretty, pretty balls. Oh, yes, I'll take that. I never entertain, certainly not for the last 15 months. I never entertain. I've just got a lot of balls. And I, I, for the first time ever, I looked and I thought, oh, if I die, someone's got to clear all these balls out. <laughs> No, no, they'll want to keep them in, and people will, people will buy, pay admission. They'll queue down the steps to go and see <laughs> Marie McCurlin's. It'll, like it'll be like Anne Hathaway's cottage. <laughs> like, really? It was, it was here. She, it was here she broadcast from. Yes, it was this sofa. She sat here. While she was eating what's it from this bowl. Look, the Christmas tree is still growing. The irony. <laughs> It is still growing. Thank you for asking. I know what I've got. I've got hundreds of those things. You know, when you buy fancy yogurts or those little ready-made chocolate pots and things, and they're in the little glass thing, and you somehow think you're going to use that again. Yeah, they're called ramekins. Yeah. Ramekins. And well, I've got. I've got that. Honestly, I could do. I could cater a really big event if people only ate a ramekin of something. <laughs> Because I've got so many of them. No, but did you know, little known fact, those little glass ramekins, I think we all know the products, you can just pop a, this is so good, you can pop a Pringles top, it fits perfectly, Graham, it fits perfectly on the top, thereby making your endless <laughs> supply of glass ramekins. Have lids. Uh, have <laughs> lids. Who cares? Now, then what no, are they? No. It's just, no. now they won't even stack. Now no, just... <laughs> now you can put, Graham, you can put spare buttons and <laughs> nails of certain length and you can put labels on the top saying quarter inch nails, half inch nails wow. in handy little ramekins Locked but out. take them from under the cupboard Lockdown <laughs> hasn't been long enough for you has it? <laughs> I need more time I need more time <laughs> don't open things I'm still labelling 
Uh, I would like to know what people do with those ramekins. I, you know, you think I'll I'll save them, and then they get to sort of over two hundred, and then you think, oh no, now I can't throw them away, but I must recycle. But I don't know where the bin is. Oh, I'll just leave them for now. And also, you feel judged by the person recycling, looking going through your bag, going, "What idiot saved two hundred of these?" <laughs> You're so fat, you've eaten so many of those puddings. (laughs) Yeah, come round to your house to have a look at you. Wow. Uh, Okay, you gather yourself, gather your letters, and we'll have Graham's Guide. Virgin Radio. Now, I've got the letters in front of me. First one is uh, not a letter, it's a book. So do do start reading it. (laughs) (laughs) That's a challenge. Yes, it's quite long. Yeah. Here we go. Dear Graham and Maria... My best friend John and I are great mates and shared the silly sense of humour. Sadly, over about 15 years, he lost two wives to cancer and as a result hit a very low spot. I made sure I was there to support him as any friend would and helped him to get through it. Just before Covid struck, he told me he had decided to move to his favourite spot in the world, Cyprus. He put his house up for sale and just ahead of his move, totally surprised me by saying he wanted to give me £20,000 and his car. It was his way, he said, of showing just how appreciative he was and that I should visit whenever I wanted to. Naturally, I told him our friendship was unconditional, but was deeply touched by his kind gesture. He was, I should say, very comfortable with a few private pensions coming in on top. A few weeks before his move, he phoned me and said he felt he'd made a a mistake. He wanted to keep his money, but he just said he'd been too generous and for the sake of our friendship, wouldn't ever bother me again as he knew how upset I would be. The truth is, I wasn't upset about the money, brackets, I didn't need it. I was upset my friend had seemed to change and I thought it might have been my fault. He confided to a mutual friend that it was purely selfish on his part that I'd done nothing and he knew I'd never want to speak to him again after him needing to make a clean break. I did email him a few months later to see how he was, but he replied saying that I would hear, and in inverted commas, if anything ever happened to him. So I've just not bothered to try again. I often think of him and all the laughs we shared. Should I just let sleeping dogs lie? That is from Gareth in North Wales. Well, Gareth in North Wales is very sad. And I understand your absolute confusion over this. But this man, your friend, has suffered a great amount of trauma by putting his house on the market and kind of severing ties, moving to Cyprus, offering you vast amounts of money and his car, etc. It's a kind of, it's a, a crisis, it's a cry for help, it's, I'm going to make a clean break, but as we all know, and if you don't know, you must remember, We take ourselves with us wherever we go. All the trouble, all the pain, all the backpack of woes comes with us, regardless of where you are. So, you know, it's difficult for him and it's doubly difficult for you because I think he's possibly embarrassed. He wants to sever ties. He wants to start a new life. Who knows, Gareth, in North Wales? He may, you know, be embarrassed. He may want to start a new life. He may have come out. He may have got a... A younger wife who's, you know, embarrassing for him or he's, you know, he feels like a silly old fool. We don't know what's going on in Cyprus, but he's in trauma and he has been for some time. And I think he needs to deal with some of this. If I were you, Gareth, I would just leave it for a while. It's been a while since before COVID. Leave it for a while. And then maybe just a friendly email to say, hey, I really miss you and I miss the laughs. I was thinking of coming to visit. Graham, what do you think? Well, uh, yes, I feel like Garrett's given up on this quite quickly. You know, I, I feel like they were so close for so long. And and obviously, you know, that bond was appreciated by the friend. Uh, the money thing is a weird thing because I think what what must have happened was Garrett's friend sold his house suddenly at hundreds of thousands of pounds and thought, wow. And, you know, as a very generous gesture, gave his friend 20 grand. Then he thought, oh, actually, I'll need to buy a new house and I need to live. And yeah, I know he's got his private pensions. But still, you're suddenly thinking this money needs to last quite a long time and things aren't exactly things might be cheaper in Cyprus but they're not free so I think maybe that's where his panic came in and he to do that and I think a lot of this now is about embarrassment I think he's embarrassed that he had to to do that kind of turnabout with the money 
And I, I, I feel like Gareth's leaving a little bit out, where I think Gareth maybe was annoyed. You know, initially, I think he's, it's all settled down now and now he's not annoyed, but I think initially, that phone call, he must have been a bit... <laughs> a bit... You know, yes, hacked off. There's certainly parts that we're not being told here. Yes. But, you know, you didn't need the money anyway, Gareth, in North Wales. It was a kind of wild gesture. I'm laughing because, you know, possibly people in North Wales are going, hundreds of thousands, are you having a laugh, Graham? <laughs> hey, uh, Gareth has <laughs> private pensions. I imagine he lived in some beautiful, a beautiful villa in North Wales overlooking the sea. But when you say he's given up, I mean, it's been, it was his pre-COVID that his friend left for for Cyprus. So it's been quite a long time. Um, your life has stayed the same, Gareth, in North Wales. You know, whatever you do, it's been the same. You have been carrying on living your same life. His life is very different, clearly. It may not be going well in Cyprus. You know, he because, as I say, you take yourself with you, he may be struggling and he may be doubly embarrassed, A, by the money in the car and B, by the fact that he's done this huge gesture and it's not working out. Yes, um, and also, I'd imagine... I mean, listen, he, he hasn't written in and he's made his decision now, but you sort of thinking that place must be full of so many memories for him. You know, with his two wives, you know, they probably, that's where they holidayed, that's where they went. This is the bar where I sat when she told me. You know, all of that stuff. He's gone, he's gone to somewhere where he has no other memories. Presumably all his memories are about those things, which, I mean, in a way, I understand it because he got although I love it there. And then you get there and now I'm by myself. And I think that must be quite hard. So I would keep I would keep in touch with your friend, Gareth, because he may, as I say, as Maria says. It's quite final, though, to say you'll hear if anything ever happens. No, that sounds really. But that sounds like a sort of uh, there's something quite needy about that. It's a bit kind of like, you know, I'm going to take a a walk to the pier. Don't don't come after me. It Uh, does, doesn't it? Yeah. So, uh, yes, I, I but I do think stay in touch because you have been a very good friend to this man. He did appreciate that friendship and uh, he may be too embarrassed now to say how much he still needs you and how much he still needs people to be in touch. So keep plugging away, not in a kind of don't bombard him and don't show up at his door. I mean, the thing is, if you if you get some sort of communication going, I don't know whether that... Is it on our list? Probably not, I don't know. But when you can go to Cyprus... It would be, you know, at least it's a nice place to go. It's <laughs> funny to say, though, isn't it? Come and visit any time. He's gone from that to you'll hear if anything happens to me. So it does seem very final. But I think you're right, Graham. I think in a gentle way, try and put yourself in his position and imagine what he may be going through, Gareth, or what yeah. could be happening to him and make it less about you and what you've lost and more about where he is. It's stupid money. It's stupid money. Stupid money has come in and complicated this and messed up their friendship. It's... Oh. Anyway, and my favourite responses today will receive a beautiful box of Levantine Rose and Lemon Turkish Delight, made the traditional way in open pans by a family-owned Turkish confectioner inspired by the diverse and vibrant culture of the Levant region in the Middle East. It's such a pretty box. It is really gorgeous. It's, it's, a, little, it's a little bit of summer in a box. That's what that is. Billy in Dundee says, What a sad end to a friendship. But maybe what he needs is a clean break to find his way in life. He will need you before you need him. And that is, I mean, that's a, it's harsh, but it's true because Gareth is getting on with his life. Gareth still has his other friends. It's John who's all on his Todd in, in, in Cyprus. So, yes, he may well have to reach out. Madeline's in Hampshire. It sounds like Gareth's friend is going through a kind of crisis, breakdown, depression. He needs your support. Keep up the contact, but don't overdo it. It's so hard to judge that, isn't it? <laughs> To kind of stay in touch, but not be kind of like, oh, it's another email from them. Uh, Just an occasional email, Christmas and birthday card. Be the friend you've always been, letting him know that you're still there for him. The money isn't a big issue for you. you. It's your friendship that is more valuable to you that one day you'd still like to visit him in Cyprus. Um, Catherine's in Ambleside. Perhaps Gareth will hear if anything happens to his friend in Cyprus because he's been left something in his will. That's a dark turn. That's taken a very dark turn there. But you might be right. I mean, maybe, maybe that's what it meant. I don't know. Uh, Victoria, regular listener in Stratford-upon-Avon. I offered to give away all my expensive handbags to a friend once, then severely regretted it. I've avoided them since. 
I said, because you couldn't bear to see your lovely handbag on their arm. That would be, or actually they probably sold them. Um, At least Gareth's friend had the guts to be honest. He will come round, Gareth. Don't worry. Give him time. Oh, I do. I do hope so. I feel for both of them. Uh, I tell you what, uh, Victoria, Victoria, regular listener, you can have the Levantine table, uh, flavours of the Middle East, rose and lemon Turkish delight winging its way to you. Graham's Guide. All right. Uh, letter two, please. Express. Boom. OK, go, go, go. OK, dear Graham and Maria, I have just recently, brackets, two weeks ago, close brackets, made it official with someone who I have been seeing since January. It's been going well. There have been a few bumps in the road, but those have just made us stronger. Now, my issue is that my partner is terrible at communicating. Even after discussing communication with them multiple times, our conversations over text are very delayed and lacklustre, and from the outside looking in, it seems that they're not interested at all. This wouldn't be an issue if we saw each other often, but we live an hour away from each other, so we only really get to hang out and do something every other week due to work. I really want to make this relationship work out with them, as when I'm with him, he makes me super happy, but I'm afraid another conversation about communication is just going to cause him to be more annoyed than actually solve the issue at hand. Any advice would be grand, and that's from Phoebe in Salford. Phoebe in Salford, can I just say to you, slow down, lady. You've been together since January. You've made it official. Well done. That's four months. When you say it's been going well, there have been a few bumps in the road, but they've just made us stronger. I'm thinking, does he feel the same way as you on this one? I get the feeling from your letter, Phoebe in Salford, sorry, that you are so desperate to make this relationship work for whatever reason, you know, there are plenty of folk out there, um, that you're doing a lot of the heavy lifting here. Uh, You only see each other every other week, so it makes, you know, an official since January even kind of fewer times that you've seen each other. Is he as into you as you are into him, Phoebe? I'm sorry to ask that question, but it really needs to be asked. I think you need to back off and let him do some heavy lifting. And if he's not prepared to extend the metaphor, to pick up the dumbbells, (laughs) (laughs) then... Then Don't call Phoebe it. Dumbbells. <laughs> no, that could be our pet it's a nice name. Nickname. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't, what do you think, Graham? Do you think there's too much neediness going on? Well, here? you know what? I think here's the thing, Phoebe. You've got to look early on. You, and this is good. You've noticed he's not changing. You're having your conversations about communicating. He's going, uh-huh, 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 actually looking over his shoulder at the television. And uh, nothing's changing. <laughs> because it's not going to change. So, Phoebe, if it all been great when you're with him and it being a bit rubbish when you're not with him isn't good enough, then it's never going to be good enough. This isn't going to get better. What I would say to you, Phoebe, is that... When you're in a relationship, not everything's about you. You know, he may be busy. It's not that he's ignoring you. He's being distracted by something else or he's focusing on something else or he's worried about something or whatever. It's. I think that the temptation in a relationship is to think that everything the partner does is somehow connected to you. And it's not often. They're still having, their, particularly when they live so far away, they are having their own life. They are doing their own thing. And it, it's, although you're very excited about this new relationship, you know, we've made it official, uh, you know, he's still going on with his life. And to hear his phone pinging all the time, I imagine, gets a little bothersome. And also, when she said, she writes in a letter, I have recently, two weeks ago, made it official. That's not a we. I think I can just feel desperation in this letter. Um, and I feel for you, Phoebe, because, you know, you think, yeah, when we're together, it's all great. But if you only see each other every other week, and it's been since January, that's four months, I'm doing the maths, it's about two months, basically, you've hung out. That's still not very long. And if already the communication is being is difficult and you've talked about it and you can't bring it, you know, you don't want to bring it up again because you don't want to make him annoyed. Guess what? You will make him annoyed. And if it's a big thing for you, this ain't going to happen. Yes. I mean, that's the thing. You've got to decide, Phoebe, what 
what's enough for you. I mean, I think the other thing is, uh, I don't know what age he is, but some people prefer to talk on the phone. Maybe, you know, every couple of days, just have a conversation rather than kind of stupid, you know, texts about nothing. Not that I'm judging you, Phoebe. But... uh... (laughs) Yes, how do you know? We've called her dumbbell because her texts are about nothing. We're not very nice to our listeners. Well, here. I mean, I think, but Phoebe, if Phoebe, I mean, what's Phoebe texting him about? I mean, saying, love you, miss you, need you. I, if, if, I would yeah. hazard a guess at things like that. Yeah. Have you tried the Mexican style rice? I just put it on Facebook that we're officially an item, all those things that are very, very irritating. Um, oh. But that's, I mean, I do think, Phoebe, just back off a bit and let him, you know, be a little more kind of harder to, harder to get, shall we say, so that he does have to put a bit of effort in because at the moment he's not trying. He's just annoyed at you constantly texting him and telling him he doesn't communicate. Yeah, I mean, I just think he's not avoiding you. He's not actively avoiding you. You do see each other and it's great when you're together. So I think... If that's yes, like I say, if that's not enough, or you can't see it going anywhere, or you know, if you're not, if you're always going to be an hour away from each other, and your work is always going to be in the way, then this probably isn't enough of a relationship for you, Phoebe. I think you, you as a person, require more from a relationship. And as much as you love this guy, and as much you'd like to make it work, it's not. A, sometimes. You know, it's not, there's other things at play rather than just two people. There's circumstances, there's life around it. And you just have to accept that maybe either it'll never be exactly what you want or it's just not going to work. Is that harsh? Well, it is a bit harsh. And I have invested in this, Graham. I would like to know from Phoebe in Salford how many more every other weeks um, they get to see each other before it dissolves. Because in the first flush of a relationship, you're really, you know, everything about that person is adorable and you can't wait to see them. And I understand from Phoebe it's all you think about, but you're not getting it back. You're not getting the the same amount of excitement and enthusiasm back. That is clear to me, and that does that does not bode well. Uh, what do you think? Neve in Derry. Some lads just don't see the need. Some lads. Some lads just don't see the need for over-communication when you are apart. But brilliant company went together in person. Chill for a while, enjoy the times you're together, and see if it annoys you less over time. I mean, that is good practical advice because, as we were saying, he's not going to change. He's not going to suddenly turn into kind of the Oscar Wilde of text. That's that's not going to happen. Sharon in Swansea. I've been in relationships where it's great when we're not together, text, etc., and a nightmare when we actually meet. <laughs> now, that is worse. I would say if you had to choose... Oh, that's worse. Relax. Enjoy the time you do spend together and create a good life for yourself when you're not. If that's not for you, then end it. You can't make the relationship into something it's not. Well put, Sharon and Swansea. Oh, now, four people in Corsham were listening and they cobbled together this advice. So Victoria, Julie, Martin and Richard listened and this is what they say. Our worry, see, it's their worry. It's, it's a collective thing. Our worry for Phoebe is that he's not fully committed. Long-distance relationships, he lives an hour away. Long-distance relationships, take, I mean, that's from here to Wimbledon. <laughs> uh, uh, take a lot of commitment from both sides. In this case, is he seeing someone else? Oh, now, I think four people have overthought this. Four brains have come together and made it much worse for Phoebe. I just think he's not a big texter. We're not saying he's cheating. Well, they are. We think she should question him and, if in doubt, move on. Good luck, Phoebe, they cried. Thank you very much. Ethel's from Cheltenham. I love that someone's called Ethel. Uh, This is Virgin Radio. That's great. Sounds like Phoebe's boyfriend has a wife and kids. (laughs) That's what he... (laughs) Ethel, are we getting a window into your world? Did something happen to you? Were you on an episode of Long Lost Family? Uh, It sounds like Phoebe's boyfriend has a wife and kids, and that's why he's busy every other week. Betty tells them he's working away when he's with Phoebe. Dump him. Got trouble written all over it. (laughs) Steve, Steve says, Morning, guys. Basically, Phoebe is breaking the massive rule of wanting to tell her boyfriend to change. Total non-starter. That is... 
that is probably true. Uh, Ethel, you're getting the you're getting the rose and lemon Turkish delight part of the Levantine table range. Flavors of the Middle East from Waitrose and Partners. That is going to you. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Right, it is time for my first guest of the day. Uh, this writer has won the UK's biggest crime fiction prize, Thixton's Old Peculiar Crime Novel of the Year, not once but twice. She's in the Crime Writing Hall of Fame, the Telegraph of Halder, Britain's finest living crime writer. Her latest, The Less Dead, is out on paperback uh, on the 13th of May. Denise Miner should be on the line now. Hello, Denise Miner. Hello, Graham Norton. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> I'm very well. How are you? I'm very well. Also, last time we spoke was on a, a podcast and uh, you could, I, I didn't encourage you to swear, but you could swear. But now we're on the radio and, you know, we're, we're playing by full broadcast <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going to, Graham. <laughs> I, just, I just thought I'd mention it. Just, <laughs> oh, yes, it's Graham. I, I can effing blind. It'll be marvellous. Uh, so, uh, The Less Dead, The Less Dead, it is centred around Margot. So tell us who Margot is and what happens at the start of the book. Margot is a very well-meaning GP who's going to meet her birth family at a a reconciliation thing in an adoption agency. And she meets her family and finds out that they are a car crash. And um, and it's really about um, historic murders of street sex workers. And she doesn't want to be involved, but what she finds out is that a man who murdered her mother is now following her because she looks so much like her birth mother. So it's a kind of chase movie. It's a sort of chase book, and um, and it's. I hope it's quite exciting. But it's really about you know why we would care about a GP and we wouldn't really care about a street sex worker and why those different victims are are weighed differently. Yeah, because this is all based on a series of real crimes in Glasgow. There was a series of sex murder, se- um, sex worker murders in Glasgow in the eighties. And there was a lot of attention paid to one of them. She was such a lovely woman and she came from a really nice family. But a lot of the other women didn't get the same kind of attention. And uh, and a lot of those women grew up in care and maybe they were a bit hate. I knew a couple of them, actually, and they were pretty scary ladies. And uh, you shouldn't have to be sympathetic. to You shouldn't have to be blonde and middle class and, and come from a lovely family for it to matter that that happens to you. We should protect everybody. Anyway... We've got. We've had enough of politics this week. I don't want to sound like a politician. <laughs> no, but it's true though. But like, but it's because I've spoken to you about this book before, and since we spoke, I, you see this all the time. Where once uh, you know, you just can't not see it. It's everywhere. Yeah, it, because some cases become huge, and they're all over the news, and you're thinking, but hang on, what about them? Uh, yes. Yeah. Terrible. And it's all. It's and it's very. You know, people think it's the police. It's not the police. People think it's crime writers. It's not crime writers. It's the culture. You have to be blonde, middle class, thin, yeah. not chaotic, basically not you or I. I mean, if we... <laughs> yeah, but no, but also it, it is us as, as consumers, we obviously are more interested in the disappearances of photogenic people. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I think it's nice to blame the cops and I think it's nice to blame the stories that we see on telly. But actually, it is a cultural wide thing and it is worth thinking about because as soon as you know, as soon as the skills fall from your eyes, you're a bit more aware and a bit more thoughtful about it. Now, the the thing that people wouldn't expect from hearing about the book so far, and it's the thing I love about your books, is they are funny. They are very funny books. Um, And we've talked about this, but that, that idea of... How do you work it? Do you, I, I mean, I do you always go for the joke, or do you kind of finish a book and kind of think, oh, this is a bit dark. I better lighten this up a bit. I mean, how does that work? Well, I think if you're dealing with very dark things, things are much, much funnier. I don't know why that is. I think, you know, I, um, it, it, police officers often have a really brilliant sense of humour. Nurses that work in ANE have always got a really brilliant sense of humour. You need it. I mean. Humour has a function. It's not just entertainment. It is a way of, of blowing off pressure. Things do. Things are very, very heightened if things are very, very dark. And I think, you know, it's quite funny because some people find the books absolutely hilarious and um, some people find the books distasteful or, you know, they think maybe I need therapy. <laughs> but you never make light of the... You never make light of the the crime or the but you do you find humor along the way i think it's it's really well done it's 
yeah. Oh, okay. thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. I mean, I think it, I think you really never want to make fun of the thing that the reader cares about, like yeah. the, the person who's died or something like that, you know, because you might have a very dark sense of humour, but you don't want to be a nasty. So, and in so. terms of the, the real crimes, how closely did you follow those real crimes or did you kind of fictionalise it completely? No, I had to do, I did loads and loads of research and I had sheafs and sheafs and I was just going to, lay it all out and use all that. And I went to see the police officer who investigated them, the senior police officer, and she, she told me not to. She said, you can't do that. That's not right. And that's other people's business. And I thought she was right. So I had to go back and rewrite the whole book. <laughs> wow. she was spot. Well, the ethics of that are really yeah. difficult. They're really complex. And she was spot on. And that is someone else's, the worst thing that happened to any one of those families. And uh, And I was using it for a story. So I had to go back and change it all. It's difficult, isn't it? And, and you know, Glasgow is obviously a city, but it's not a very big city. So have you bumped into families of people who were affected by these crimes? Have they read the book? Well, bizarrely, it turns out I already knew some of them. And um, because Glasgow is tiny and, you know, the families tend to be quite big and everybody's very connected. So somebody that I've known for years and years, we were out walking dogs in the park and I started telling her what I was writing a book about. And um, she said, oh, that was my cousin. One of them. Wow. So, you, you, yeah, I know it's really tiny, Glasgow, especially if you know lots of people. You know, in Glasgow, it's almost a civil, um, it's almost like a crime to not make conversation. So you do know loads and loads of people. It's not like London where you can kind of keep to yourself or Edinburgh where if you make small talk, people punch you in the face. <laughs> but also you're uh, out. You've got a bike. You've got a dog. You're you know, you're you're a woman it, of the you know, people. <laughs> that's it. And, and I do voluntary work. And so you do meet lots of different groups of people. And inevitably, you would know people. Um, who were involved in that, especially women my age, because we all grew up during that time. Yeah. So here's the thing. Denise Minor, you know, as I read out there, you in the Crime Writer Hall of Fame, you've won the, the Crime Novel of the Year twice. So, you know, you are successful. Very, very successful. And then Reese Witherspoon comes to call. Uh, tell us about that, because she, she made you part of her book club. She did. Um, I, I, she phoned and I was um, sitting in the bedroom and, and we had quite a long conversation and she said, you know, we'd like to make you part of the book club and stuff. And, uh, and then I hung up. And because she's very famous, she's very guarded. She's not going to say anything controversial or burp or anything like that in case she phoned the papers. <laughs> and then she, she was so sweet. And I just said, you know, she's such an amazing woman. And uh, and then after about half an hour conversation, we hung up and, and I realised that could really have been anybody American. I mean, it, could... <laughs> it could have been anybody. <laughs> um, how did it, how did it, I mean, so, you know, are you in the phone book or did she, were there agents involved, all that sort of stuff? There was a string of agents involved and, uh, and you know, just, I mean, it's all, it's a big palaver. Everything's very carefully managed. Yeah. And, but very recently they sent me a giant gift box of amazing food. I sound like, I sound so greedy. Yeah, there is a theme <laughs> but, here. There is a bit of a theme. But anyway, the box arrived and, you know, nothing's been happening in COVID. So we opened the box and everyone in the house came and we all ate everything. We were going, what lovely people. And then we got to the very bottom <laughs> We realised we were supposed to take, I was supposed to take a photo of myself with the box <laughs> before we ate all the food. And we'd already thrown the wrappers away and they were covered in fish oil. So we had to get it all out and sort of reconstruct it like a crime watch and take a photo. And, but uh, but then what happens when, when you are something part of something as big as that? Because that's kind of, you know, Reese Witherspoon, she's up there with kind of Oprah in terms of her power. Do they kind of go, crank up the printing presses, <laughs> print more, print Big more? Big time. And they really, really do. Yeah. I mean, it's, these things have an incredible um, effect on sales. And presumably, uh, you know, I'm, I don't know how you'd sold in America beforehand, but presumably it really opened up uh, that market to well, you. I mean, always sold well, to be honest with you. And, you know, I mean, I don't really talk about it because if you admit to being successful in Glasgow, someone might, <laughs> someone is entitled to beat you to death with a shoe. So I've always sort of hidden the fact that I was, you know, I, I mean, I've been shortlisted for the LA Times Book of the Year and stuff like that. And I was, you know, lots of things I could bum about. But um, it, it was, the book was on the New York Times bestseller list. And that's the first time that's happened. Wow. But that's because of Reese Witherspoon. And and uh, you being very good, you know, I, I think Reese Witherspoon could pick a rubbish book, and people, I don't think people would be fooled. I think they. Well, I but I think there's so many books out there, you know. I mean, it's not just about being good; it's also about being promoted, and she does that for people, and she does it for quite obscure books that she really loves. 
and 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 she reads them all because she was talking to me about the content of the book so she's not just a corporate entity she's a real reader like you actually you're a real reader I you do know, read. She's a proper yeah. reader. Yeah. But it's also, I think what's, you know, if you write a book, you know how hard it is. And then you go into a bookshop or a library and you go, wow, a lot oh, of people have done that. <laughs> I know. And so many good books that just fall through the cracks. You yeah. And um, so you really have to, if you are a real reader, hand sell the books you love. Um, because, it, you know, it makes such a difference. And, and, you know, there are very few, I mean, it's hard to find the books that you're really going to love. How many books have you read that, that really blew you away? They're out there, but there's so many being published, it's quite hard to find them. It is. And yeah, and, and also that the personal thing, when somebody recommends a book, there's nothing better than someone telling you, oh, you'd like to read this book, you know. Unless you don't like them. Because I remember <laughs> someone strongly promoting the book Perfume to me and it was a guy on a date and I thought, I'm never going to read that book. And I read it years <laughs> later and it was brilliant. <laughs> so See? That can backfire. <laughs> yeah. And also, because if you'd read that book, you might have liked him more because you kind of think, oh, OK, he likes this book. Yeah, he can't be that Not- bad. Not in that jersey. No. <laughs> <laughs> and listen, very quickly, uh, we saw you, uh, was that last year you did the um, the Frank Skinner, Boswell and Johnson's tour of the Highlands on Sky Arts? Was that last year? Yes, that was last year. Yeah, well, it was pr- it was broadcast last year, but we'd filmed it like three years before. And, and how that did it what... happen? I mean, who, was it like a blind date? Who put you together? It was a blind date and um, we were actually together with the producer. We met in Johnson's house and within about two minutes, we just knew, oh, this is brilliant. I just really get you. You Do you know what I mean? I mean, I know him, but he doesn't know me from Adam. And uh, and within about two minutes, he said to the producer, I think you can leave us alone. We're not going to attack each other. <laughs> <laughs> we had a hurt doing that. He's such a good guy. No, I was it, like, you are both great company. So watching the two of you together was fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, let's remind everybody, The Less Dead. The Less Dead by Denise Miner is out on the 13th of May uh, on in paperback. When is the 13th of May? Is that Tuesday? Next week. Yep. Tuesday. Are you are you pla- are you planning? I don't know if that's true. I'm just agreeing. Are you planning anything for the day? Are you have you saved any of Reese's biscuits? Well, I may um, give the air a, a mild, uh, weak-wristed fist pump and um, uh, maybe a pack of Oreos. I'm not sure, but th- these things tend to leak out, don't they? So the day is sort of slightly random. Yeah, exactly. It is odd, but it be up in your head. It's the day. It's your day. Your special day. <laughs> uh, listen, it'd be lovely to talk to you, Denise Miner. Take care of yourself and good luck with the less dead when it's out on the 13th of May. Thanks so much, Graham. Bye bye. All right. Cheers. Bye. Still to come, Anthony Boyle takes us behind the scenes in his appearance on the brand new BBC Two drama Danny Boy. But first, Russell Tovey joins us live in the studio to celebrate his new release, Talk Art. Everything you wanted to know about contemporary art, but were afraid to ask. Uh, we're on the radio. Russell. Hello. <laughs> yeah, the song stopped and we're on and the radio. Still yeah, we weren't really <laughs> listening. We're on the radio. Uh, Russell Tovey joins me. Uh, you know Russell Tovey from so many TV shows, but we're here today because he's got a podcast called Talk Art. And that podcast has now spawned a beautiful book. Oh, you've got it here. I do. Nobody can see that. I can see that. It's a beautiful pink square book yeah. that Graham's holding up. Yeah, it is gorgeous. Now, and you do this, I meant to check with you off air because I never say Robert's surname because I don't know how. Well, um, how do you want to say it? I don't want to say it. Just try it. Diamant. That's cute. It's Diamond. <laughs> Diamante. Yes, Diamond. Yes, Diamond. So, Robert so, Diamond. So, Diamond. Yes. No, because I've heard him say it and then I can never remember. Right. I, when he says it, I think, oh, I must remember that. And then... I never do. I never, I never yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. So it's Russell Dovey and Robert. <laughs> and his good Robert friend... Robert D. Robert D. You can go yeah, Robert D. Yeah, Robbie D. Yeah, 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 there we go. Yeah, R to the D to the... Uh, <laughs> so you guys, you were, you've been friends... Like before 12 years. Oh, wow, OK. Yeah, and we met at a Tracy M in retrospective in Edinburgh and we quickly developed this shorthand for art um, and realised we're both kindred spirits when it comes to being a geek for art. Yeah. And we set up this podcast, Talk Art, uh, August 2018, basically as a platform for us to get together and geek off. 
uh, with each other. We were going to talk about shows we'd seen, review stuff, experiences within the art world. Then we started interviewing people and more people came on and got interviewed. Then it got more of attraction and now suddenly it's snowballed. We've had nearly 3 million downloads and now we've got this book and it's become a thing. It's like a proper thing that runs alongside the rest of my life. Yeah. I'm like in this polyamorous relationship with acting and the <laughs> art world now and it's uh, it's such a gift and I'm having the best time. No, because I saw some pictures on your Instagram of you know the two of you, you and Artie, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> with, with big parts of the book. And I just yeah. thought that your sense of sort of pride and achievement yeah. of creating this must be enormous it is enormous but it does feel like it's just appeared i mean you you've written books yourself and i don't yeah. know your experience but my experience was it was a slog when we were doing it and suddenly it's there and it doesn't i can't believe we've written this actual book because begin with i thought when we was approached by publishers we were just gonna they were gonna transcribe the interviews they get cleared by the guests and then we'd have like this tome of the interviews of talker yeah. no they were like we want your guide to the art world and then we were like well we've got to write about everything how do we write about art history they were like no it's not going to be that academic just about your experience what the art world is because people are coming to the podcast who feel shut out and they don't find the art world accessible and suddenly this book is all about accessibility yeah it's all about showing people that you can get involved in the art world you can get in there and it's a, obviously because it's a book it's beautiful and visual you've got yeah. gorgeous gorgeous reproductions yeah, mate, yeah. we've it, been it. so lucky with the artists giving us like allowing us to use their images and lots of images in there are by artists that have never had their work printed in any publications so we're re- kind of introducing a lot of artists to like a contemporary audience yeah. and so so you were what, 21 when, mm. when you got your first Tracy Evan print yes yeah so from that moment to now mm. I mean how did you and I because I interviewed you about this um, uh, book on your podcast yes. so how did you learn kind of uh, sort of how to have the confidence to talk about art. Because I like art, but if anybody asks me a question, you just go, it's nice. Uh, uh, <laughs> I like the colours. How did you learn to talk? Well, I mean, it is, it is a whole language, but how did I learn to talk about art? I just I think being around it all the time and experiencing it and talking to artists, yeah. talking to, you know, curators, collectors, the, the, there is kind of a shorthand. But what what the thing about Talk Art is why we set out is because we're so used to hearing these interviews where you hear people collectively talk about art in such a reverential way and they're referencing all these things that you have no concept of what they are, but nobody explains it. Nobody stops to hold your hand and help you along. And people need their hand help when it comes to art because it's confusing. Yeah. So we had this podcast and I'm very open going, hold up, what does that mean? Can you just explain that? Because if I don't know what it is, and I'm a geek for this stuff, if I don't know what this, this is, our listeners aren't going to know what it is. And I I think that refreshing kind of approach to art, which brings it down from being academic, just makes it accessible because it is for everyone. Because yeah. all art is, is basically storytelling. We're used to the watching a movie, we get that. Listen to a song, reading a book, we get that. But with the arts, you've got to work a bit harder. But all it is is someone telling you a story. And you can't expect it to be expected to go into a library, pick up every book and more and read everything. You're drawn to a voice. You're drawn to a writer. And you go, oh, OK, I like this. But what are they inspired by? Let me see what else they're listening to or looking at. And that's the journey you can go on. And it's it's just about simplifying that, not being scared of it, and knowing that art is for everyone. Yeah. And, I mean, we're so lucky to, to live in London because yes. it's incredibly accessible. And I think people are kind of thinking, because commercial galleries, you immediately think, oh, money, it's it's very elite. Yeah. But they're open to everyone. They're you free. Don't, you don't just they buy anything. They want you to go. Yeah. It's for, you know, these art, the artists aren't making work for the collectors. They are, but they also are making work because they want to speak to people. They want to connect to people and they want their art seen by as many people as possible. So these galleries are open to everyone and they want you to go in. Yeah, and one of the perks of the horrible times we've been through yeah. is it's now accessible for people everywhere because so many galleries now have these really sophisticated online viewing exhibitions absolutely i mean you know just follow artists on instagram that for me is one of the most exciting things of discovering emerging artists which is what we really champion with talk art is these emerging voices about why people are compelled to make art that's the fascination yeah and contemporary art it it seems to be going through like, you know, it's always been kind of a boom time, but now it's, it seems to be just in a pressure cooker of boom time in I terms of so. prices I guess so. and things. I guess so, but I feel like all culture has kind of 
culture doesn't stay still. So we've had the pandemic and, you know, some things, your culture doesn't go, okay, let's just pause this, wait for this to blow over, then we go back to what we did before, guys, all right? It's like, no, 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 you keep forging ahead because people still tell stories. They need to tell stories. And the way to understand the world is through art, is through watching movies, reading books, seeing visual arts. That's how you know who your fellow man is. The contemporary artists you're talking to, do they have now just sheds full of work that they've been doing in lockdown? Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of artists haven't been showing work. There's been no exhibitions. So some <laughs> artists have took this time to kind of reevaluate what their practice is. You know, some artists have had a lot of attention on them. They've they've been allowed to stop, slow down and, and look at what they've done. Yeah. And yeah, that's exciting. So I, I'm excited to see the work that, has come, that is coming out of this, that is going to come out of this. That's what's inspiring about anything that happens in the world. Culture is the first thing that responds to it. Sal and Exeter is asking, well, essentially, it's what the book's about. What advice would you give to someone just starting out in the art collecting world? Just get out there and see as much as possible. Work out what it is you're uh, attracted to, but just collect out of pure passion because that's going to be on your wall. Don't look at it as an investment. If it goes up, wonderful. But if you just want to collect, the best way is to find emerging artists that you can support because you can get work that's relatively inexpensive, but you're really making an impact on that artist's life. You're probably paying their studio fees or buying their materials to make that work. And that is something really exciting to then develop a friendship and a relationship with emerging artists that you can grow with them. And do you go to graduate shows, you know, art school graduate done, yeah, shows? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I go to see as much as I can. But, like, for graduate, like, the thing is, I guess there was a time when, oh, Russell Tovey's off the telly is coming to see our show. Yeah. But now it's Russell Tovey and Robert D. Are, are, <laughs> <laughs> Robbie D. are, are, are coming, yeah. you know. I, you know, The pressure's may, on. Yeah, maybe we'll be on the podcast. Maybe we'll be in the, you know, the next uh, talk art book. Yeah. Do you feel that? pressure of now you are a mover and shaker in the art world don't deny it i i don't well no i just feel like we've i'm really proud of what we've achieved and we're doing something that's good basically me and robbie d see ourselves as a (laughs) conduit to to talent as a conduit to these experiences i don't feel like we're kind of the gatekeepers i feel like we're just facilitators for people for, for discovery yeah um, uh, uh, Jill and Colchester oh now this will go into your rehearsals yeah. can we expect to see Russell at any new shows anytime soon yes we can yes we can I'm currently rehearsing Constellations for the West End it's going to be at the Vaudeville Theatre it opens soon it's the Donmar West End written by Nick Payne amazing play and I'm doing there's four versions of a two-hander play so every night you'll see a different couple of the same play because it's all about the multiverse and I'm doing it with Amari Douglas who was Roscoe and it's a sin and he's a superstar. Um, it's lovely though, isn't it, that you... <laughs> like, it's a nice little soft re-entry into theatre because you're not having to do it every night. <laughs> no, yeah, that, that is true. That's really nice, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah I love theatre. <laughs> on a Tuesday, like... <laughs> a Friday. <laughs> it, no, it is actually really nice and it's it's a short play. It's like uh, 70 minutes, so it's it's the pressure's off on that and you start it and you finish it. But I can't wait to go back on stage. I, I've missed it terribly. Uh, Gillian has written, she just wants to say thank you to you for reading from Logical Family by Armistice Bopin at the Barbican some years ago. Oh, Gillian. And, I, and she, she saw me in the audience. I was going to say, yes, I was there too that oh, night. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was an amazing night. And Gillian was there with her daughter and she just wept a wonderful evening because you read that amazing letter. Yeah, Mouse's letter to his parents, to his mum, that was from Armistice Bopin's uh, Towers of the City. Yeah, I mean... I mean, I, I wept reading it. It's a, a powerful letter and, and Armistead was sat next to me. So what an absolute privilege. You're, you're friends of Armistead, didn't you? Yeah. What an absolute privilege just to read Mouse's letter, to be given that kind of responsibility was phenomenal. Yeah. And what's the story with um, exhibitions and galleries now? Are they fully reopened? Commercial galleries are open. Museums are opening very soon. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, but, you know, there's so much public art out there, but it, it, it's going to be a renaissance, Graham. It's going to be crazy when it all opens. It's going to be wonderful. It feels like it is. Yes. It's it's getting crazy yeah. already. It really yeah, is. Totally. Yeah, because I think a lot of the galleries you have to now, you can't just rock up in the way that you used to. I think you have to make appointments. I think you make appointments, but sometimes you can sort of knock on the door nicely and they, they'll let you in if it's not too busy. I'm Russell Tovey from Talk Art. <laughs> <laughs> what was that accent? <laughs> you may want to let me in. <laughs> I could change your life. <laughs> Something like that. No, or, or you just do a nice cheeky smile when they let you in. Yeah. And what are you doing with the book? Are you doing any events or signings or things? There's loads of stuff. I mean, lots of IG lives at the minute. So <laughs> please follow my Instagram and you'll see it. But there's there's loads coming up and there's lots of signed copies that are available now at Waterstones and there's loads of like online pre-orders and it's out on Thursday next week and there will be loads of things. But please uh, support it because I, I, I think you'll love it. And are there new... How often do you do the podcast? 
how long often do we record? Well, we drop one every week. We're kind of obsessed, but we're recording all the time, constantly. It's a constant thing, but we're kind of, you know, work is more fun than fun. We're obsessed with it. Oh, fantastic. Well, you can get that podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. And uh, Talk Art Book is out on May 13th. Russell Dovey, thank you so much thank for coming to so see Thank you so much. Well, pleasure. Thanks for schlepping in. No, Sorry, I love it. Have him. you tied Rocky up outside? Yeah, he's just on a lamppost down the road somewhere. <laughs> yeah. All right, take care, everyone. Big love. Thank, Thank you, you very everyone. much. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Next up on the Graham Norton Show on Virgin Radio with Waitrose is the star of BBC Two's latest feature-length drama, Danny Boy, which airs Wednesday, uh, the 12th of May at 9 o'clock. His name is Anthony Boyle. He should be on the line now. Hello, Anthony. Hi, Graham. How are you? I'm very well. All the better for talking to you. Uh, so, the congratulations on this. I watched it yesterday afternoon. It's it really is an exceptional film. It's it's a beautiful story. Well, it's it's beautifully told. It's it's a true story. Uh, tell us who you play and kind of the the genesis of the idea. I played Brian Wood, who was a soldier who served in Iraq, and um, he was involved in a battle, the Battle of Danny Boy. And uh, when he came home, he was sort of held as a war hero. He was on the front of papers and. You know, people thought he was amazing. And then a lawyer, human rights lawyer, called Phil Shiner, um, began to investigate him and thought there was wrongdoing. And he was on trial for 10 years, I believe. Um, and our story just sort of goes into his life when he was a bit younger and um, up until the the trial. And uh, you just sort of see the trials and tribulations. And it's really about the grey area and the search for truth. And that's what's so brilliant about it, is that, you know, it, it's not a pro-war film by any means, but it also, it's very grown up in talking about, yeah. you know, there's the war bit. <laughs> How do you yeah. know when the war bit stopped? Yeah, it's that thing that's, that's split the second decision-making when you're in the fog of war. It's, 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 it's kind of incredible. But that was the thing that drew me to the script the most, is, is how grey it was. It wasn't, I, I didn't think it was, it wasn't judging the characters in it. It wasn't saying, here's black, here's white, here's a hero, here's a villain. I just felt it was, here are people, and some of them are making mistakes and some of them are getting it right, and I thought it was an incredible script. And these people, because I, I was watching and thinking, I wonder if, if um, is it, I think it's Robert Jones wrote it, right? Yes, he did, yeah, yeah. So I, I was wondering, oh, I wonder if he's kind of, you know, amalgamated different real people to create these characters. But your, your Brian Wood is real. He's a real guy. I mean, he's probably listening now. He's, hello, uh, Brian. He, hello, Brian, mate. How are you getting on, Woody? Uh, he's, he'd got the best hair in showbiz as well. So um, <laughs> he'd enjoy that wee comment. But um, no, he's, uh, he's, he's very real. Yeah, I actually wanted not to meet him. I wanted to stay away from him because I didn't want to, to meet him, fall in love with him and be too sympathetic or meet him, hate him and, you know, betray him. <laughs> as a, a bad person gets him. But I'll get was, you. <laughs> yeah, basically. But then a week before we started filming, I went, okay, look, I'll meet him for half an hour because I just want to talk about the war stuff. But then we ended up sort of in a hall for about seven hours, just eating pret sandwiches and drinking soup. Um, and we just talked about everything, about his life, about war. About, you know, he, he's an incredible guy, really. Um, he's been through a really sort of unique, singular experience that most human beings haven't. So to, to, to have him, and I, we had him on set as well for the war scenes, which was just invaluable to turn around to someone who was actually there and say, how was your breath right now? Or, you know, what were you feeling at this moment? It was really, really good. I sort of cheated. I sort of, you know, I had someone, he's like the best acting coach you could ever have, really. Yeah. Is this what you were doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like this. Yeah. And well, actually, where did you film those uh, war scenes? Um, we actually, it was meant to be in Iraq, but because of COVID and whatever, we ended up filming it in a, a ditch in Watford. So um, the best acting I think I do in the movie is pretending to be warm. <laughs> and I mean, just I'm, I'm suddenly, you know, knowing that Brian is in the world and he's listening to this and, you know, presumably he, he's seen the film because it, mm. it's not just about him. It, it delves into his, his father and his marriage. I mean, it's very revealing. Yeah. Well, I think the, the testament to Brian is that he wanted to show the, you know, the truth of it all. You know, he, he wasn't trying to show a sort of, you know, clean sort of Disney sort of version. He really wanted to show the, the, the pain and the heartache. And I think that the scenes uh, in his book, he you know, he goes into his relationship with his, his wife, Lucy. And I think there's um there's real strength in that in, in sort of being vulnerable and open and, and allowing us in, you know. 
And uh, your co-star, but not your co-star, is the great Toby Jones. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you do you share? Do you have a line to each other? No, not even. I don't think. No, we don't, we we don't know. We have we have a very pensive look towards one another <laughs> in a trial. But I, I very luckily got to work with him on a film about three weeks later in Glasgow, and like all of my scenes were with him. So all the pent up rage that I had for for uh, Shiner, I got to sort of um, use that in the scenes we were doing in, in this film in Glasgow. But he's a legend, man. What a what an absolute what a hero he is. And again, what's interesting is you know he's the the lawyer, you do the war crimes, but actually he's a grey character as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the, that's the strength of the script. Is I think it's gonna make people ask questions. You know, I don't think it's a sort of piece that's spoon fed to you. I think it it should really um it should really sort of inspire people to look into the case more and, and these sort of cases. And also, we must big up Alex Ferns because uh, it's yeah. so great to see him. Kind of, I think, was Chernobyl kind of the beginning of his renaissance? Because we've seen him a lot yeah. since then. He's had a sort of reconnaissance, hasn't he? Yeah. yeah the Ferns-ons. Um, <laughs> he's, yeah, he's phenomenal. I saw him in Chernobyl and was just blown away by that performance. And um, when I found that he was going to play my dad, was, there's no better man. You know, he's a, he's a real great guy, real amazing presence, amazing character. Wow. And listen, well done for hiding your accent, because I I'd know, and I didn't realise you sounded this Northern Irish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm just a smick from Belfast, to be honest. But um, <laughs> I, uh, I just, yeah, I, I, listen, I just would listen to interviews of Brian every day, and, you know, to have him in my headphones when I was going to set. And, uh, yeah, well, not many roads are written for people from Belfast, so I have to sort of... <laughs> cultivate a good American and a good a good English. <laughs> Tell me this, Anthony, were you on Broadway when everything shut down? Uh, no, I was um, I was in New York at a, at a premiere, actually, and uh, for a thing I had coming out, me and my brother were there, and people were talking about this whole COVID thing, and we went, you know what, we'll, we'll go back to Belfast, to my mum and dad's house, and we, ha- we haven't lived there since we were about 18, and um, we went, this COVID thing will blow over in a week or so, <laughs> and we were there for about a year. And we have very, very thin walls between me and my brother. So I could hear him sort of sniff in the middle of the night. So very, very thin walls. Um, and I was just there in my single bed, just, you know, wishing, wishing I was back in America. But um, no, I wasn't, I wasn't on Broadway when that happened. Because how long were you on? You were in the, you launched Harry Potter in America, didn't you? On, the, on, on Broadway, the, what, yeah. the Cursed Child. The Cursed Child, yeah. We'd done it in uh, the West End for a year and a half. And then we'd done it on Broadway for a year and a half as well, yeah. So three years in total. I mean, that must have been a very exciting time for you to be involved in something that, you know, I, 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 I mean, people were kind of blown away by it. In it yeah. It was incredible. I mean, it was my first job at, at a drama school. I was sort of, I, I went and, um, you know, I had these like sort of anxiety dreams beforehand because I left school early to do it. And Michael Billington is the, the head critic in, in, in the UK at the time. And, I had these sort of fever dreams that he was going to write, you know, Boyle plucked too soon. You know, that's kind of like, as I was being wheeled on the stage for my first scene, I, you know, I had these, I was so nervous, man. But um, but it went really well and I, I had the best time. I was probably the best experience of my life being a part of that. Wow. And uh, have you started filming the Spielberg uh, thing, the Master of the Air yet? Yeah, I'm so we're in the third week of that now. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. It's so, really good fun. Where's that happening? Uh, we're all around the UK. We're in Abington, Oxford, uh, all, all those sort of places. And there's a few studios as well. But it's great, man. Great cast, great directors. Um, and are you going? Are you going full Tom Cruise? Are you flying? Are you flying the plane? <laughs> no, I'm not going through full Tom Cruise. No, <laughs> um, I'm. Uh, I'm a navigator, so I'm not... Um, oh, okay, not so you're not... <laughs> uh, so even if it was real, you're not flying the plane. <laughs> no, I'm not actually, not actually flying. No, we haven't been up in the air yet. Are uh, you the guy at the back of the plane? Is that where the navigator sits? Uh, the navigator's at the front of the plane. Oh, right. In a sort of per- a perspex sort of glass. Oh, that's right. You're in that funny little bit, the nose bit. Oh, wow. I'm in the funny little nose bit, yeah. And have you actually got to do that? We haven't went up in the air, but we've done sort of flight simulation and training and all these sort of things. We had a book camp with a guy called Dale Dye, who sort of does all of the Tom Hanks Spielberg army stuff. And it was um, two weeks of us just being sort of in character while him, you know, shouting at me saying, you know, Crosby, get your hands out of your pockets. <laughs> that kind of thing. And it was, it was very, it was very intense, but it was, it was really good crack. It's great that that's a now a job. Thanks to Steven Spielberg. Yeah, <laughs> Shouting yeah. at actors is a job. <laughs> yeah. Good job. Uh, who's that for? When can we see it? Uh, that's for Apple. Um, 
and I don't know because we, we haven't shot it yet, but I, I assume it'll take it'll be a long time before they put all the special effects and that sort of thing into it. Oh, fantastic. Maybe a year or so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, what a great time to be Anthony Boyle. It's all right, man. It's all right. Everything's coming up Millhouse. It's all going well. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, that you will not have to return to the single bedroom in, in Belfast. It's done now. Yeah, your parents will be glad. After, after hearing Underworld, I'm suddenly thinking, yeah. you don't want Anthony Boyle living with you for a year. No, I think, I think they were glad to see me go, to be honest. Yeah, we love you. Now go. Uh, Anthony Boyle, you give an amazing performance. Really, really, really beautiful. I, I mean, have you spoken to Brian, by the way, since you finished it? Yeah, we we have. We're, we're in contact. He messaged me today. Um, he's uh, he's great. He's been nothing but supportive. You know, it's. I thought it must be such a, an exposing thing. You know, to sh- to to share yeah. your life and to share the utmost innermost details of it, especially sort of the domesticity and and whatever. But he seems just to be so overjoyed by it, and he's really buzzing about it. And he, he he's got his book um, that he that he's written and called Double Crossed, which is a great read if anyone wants to. To buy that if they enjoy the show. Um, he's um, he's an incredible guy. Yeah, I mean that line that line you have about um, I've done nothing to be ashamed of, but that doesn't stop me feeling ashamed. It's just yeah, that's kind of the yeah, the key the key. It's just gorgeous. Um, Danny Boy, Danny Boy. It's on Wednesday at nine o'clock on BBC Two. Anthony Boyle, congratulations, and uh, I'll talk to you uh, on the next job. Amazing. See you soon, mate. All right, take care of yourself. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for joining me for the Graham Norton Radio Show podcast with Waitrose. I'm back on Virgin Radio from 9.30 on Saturday morning. And don't forget, the next episode of the podcast will be out first thing the following Monday. Speak soon. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio.